The first one that I knew of was Marlo Studemeyer. And he is, uh, was quite a figure in the Detroit sort of redevelopment circles. And they, and they said that he had died from this. And I was a, just astounded. I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is getting close to home. That's Marsha Battle Philpot, a Detroit-based writer and poet popularly known as Marsha Music. She documented the lives of the people she knew who died of the coronavirus. She did it on Facebook in short writings or vignettes. Vignettes about people that I knew or little profiles about people that I knew because I just wanted people to know these are people. These are people who were uh, contributors to Detroit, you know. While she was posting on Facebook, she noticed something. Particularly amongst my white Facebook friends, they had no one that they knew had died. Marsha touched on a crucial part of the pandemic. Who's really being infected by the virus? And government officials highlighted that point repeatedly. This virus has disproportionately impacted communities of color. This disease, this infection, has proven particularly deadly to Black people in our city. It appears to be impacting minority populations greater. More than 40 percent of, of deaths being in African Americans. In April of 2020, Michigan started reporting a racial breakdown of COVID-19 cases. The numbers at that time showed that the proportion of cases and deaths in the Black community weren't just high. They were more than double the proportion of Black people in the state. Evidence that Black residents were more likely to know someone else Black who contracted the virus or died from the virus than white people. And that what Marsha was seeing may be more common than people would have hoped. On this episode, we uncover how this disparity between Black and white communities is really just a symptom of a system Black people have lived with for centuries. This is We Lived It, a special project produced by the Detroit Free Press in partnership with the Michigan History Center. The goal here is to document stories of the pandemic for future generations, but also to bring us together while we live it. Hey, Marsha, this is Carrie. Okay, just uh, come up the flight of stairs after I buzz you in. Okay, thank you. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Marsha spoke with We Lived It in the summer of 2020. And if you're wondering why she sounded distant, that's because she was. Socially distant, of course. Our producers practiced COVID-19 safety protocols for the interview. Marsha talked about her vignettes and how her writing inspired her name. I wrote uh, much about music, particularly about Detroit music. That was my particular interest, and it was, you know, my niche. And so I uh, called myself Marsha Music. When we began hearing about this virus that was out here, there was still a certain amount of denial that everyone was in you know, and still kind of going about your business. Uh, and, you know, people would say here and there, oh, I don't want to get that. I don't want to get this new thing that's out there. So there was a consciousness about it, but people were not taking it seriously yet. 
What about you? Oh, me either. It became very serious very quickly for Marsha. She started hearing about people she knew who died of COVID-19. Whose name was Janie Geiger, Donna Faye Collins, Jeffrey Smith, Gloria Smith, Brenda Perry, Arthur Bowman Jr. So I was hearing about so many people who I knew uh, who were dying or whose parents were dying of COVID. And that is how I came to begin writing about how I knew over 30 people who had died of COVID. The racial disparities were so prevalent in Michigan and really across the country, government officials started taking a closer look. But before we do that, let's make one thing clear. This is not an issue of genetics and race in and of themselves. That's Michigan's chief medical executive, Dr. Janae Caldoun. There is nothing that says someone who is born with a particular amount of melanin in their skin, therefore, should have a higher rate of these health conditions. It is absolutely the conditions into which they are born and how they are treated in society that cause these disparities to exist. Dr. Caldoun is talking about the social determinants of health. Having insecure, inadequate housing, lower wage jobs, less access to high quality health care, and just the general stress of living in, in poverty uh, and the subsequent higher rates of underlying health conditions that come with that question that contributes to disparities. Remember when health officials warned the public that people with pre-existing health conditions were at high risk of catching the virus? You know, people with diabetes and people with high blood pressure and people who may be obese. Those are more common among black and brown people. And why is that? Well, Dr. Caldoun said the roots of these disparities were planted long ago with discrimination practices like redlining. The United States had a policy, actually, that certain communities where there were more black and brown people, you were not allowed to actually get a loan, not only for uh, a business, but even a personal homeowner's loan. White people were incentivized with lower interest, very nice loans to move out of cities where they were able to get investments into their homes, uh, those investments that later paid for their own children to go to college and just, you know, have, have investment in those communities. And you ended up having very concentrated poverty, strategically so, in communities of color. According to the U.S. Census Bureau's 2019 estimates, Detroit's poverty rate is 35%. Very little has changed. And with few financial resources, Accessing nutritious food options becomes a challenge. Yeah, we got three boxes. Okay. Okay, so I got to sign you in. Okay. Um, so, uh, have you been here before? No. How many in your household? Two. Two. How many are under 18? None. None. And what's your address? On the east side of Detroit, a community-based organization called Friends of Parkside hosted a drive through and walk-up food drive in September of 2020. The drive happens twice a month to provide food for residents of the villages at Parkside Housing Complex. But anyone who needs the support can get food. Um, so, Shane, there's going to be two for this car, okay? Zachro was the executive director of Friends of Parkside. He was in the middle of bagging food, but he took some time to talk about the organization. He said it was founded in 1991. And it was created by residents for residents. And so when COVID-19 hit, it was really an opportunity for us to re-embrace the community and begin to work with residents around issues as it relates to food insecurity. You know, and so some people that was hanging on sort of on the edge, 
COVID just kicked them over to the ledge. Zach says since its inception, Friends of Parkside has always filled the need for accessible food for residents of the city of Detroit. First of all, it's free. And, um, you know, the food at the grocery store is kind of hot. I don't get a bridge card, so I have to pay cash for So that's, you know, one reason. It helps supplement, you know, the food. You like this better than grocery shopping? Uh, well, I like to come here first. And then, you know, I could put other things together and help save my money. Overall, I could put some extra money towards bills. The pandemic further restricted black and brown communities from healthy food options, and food insecurity leads to lower health outcomes. So if all these factors put people of color at high risk, the obvious solution is to stay home and stay safe, right? Not exactly. The safety precautions health officials advised showcase the challenges facing these communities. We're asking people, if you test positive, to stay in your home and they say use your own private separate bathroom if you can. How can we expect you to use your own separate wing of your home when you're just trying to make it and you're maybe living on your couch or maybe you're in multi-generational housing, which is not always necessarily affiliated with poverty, don't get me wrong there, but it just makes every single step more challenging. And that's why we're seeing the disparities with COVID-19, just like many other diseases. And just think of the people who couldn't stay home at all. The people who had to get up every morning and go to work. In the very beginning, we were asking only essential workers to come out. Uh, so people who worked in grocery stores, people who were driving buses, those people disproportionately tend to be people of color. We know that people with underlying health conditions are more likely to get more severely ill from COVID-19. And yes, if you're already coming out of your home and you're more likely to have an underlying medical condition, then yes, you are more likely to die from COVID-19. My membership, we are uh, about 99.9% Black. That's Glenn Tolbert. He's the president of ATU Local 26, the union that represents Detroit's bus drivers. We don't check anybody getting on the bus. They were getting through the front door. There were, you know, there's conversations that are being had where you're collecting fares and things like that. After the first cases were reported, bus drivers didn't have the proper PPE equipment to protect themselves. No one was required to wear masks. We didn't have masks. There was just no safety precautions, no gloves, no no sanitizer, no wipes, anything to protect us or the public for that matter. You know, while everybody else was able to say who they would admit and who they want, we don't turn anybody away. We were at a, a higher risk from, from that perspective. Drivers refused to work in those conditions and set off a work shortage that eventually shut down the entire bus system in the city. To get transit running again, the city announced they would institute more safety protocols, like hiring more bus cleaners and only allowing passengers to onboard in the back of the bus. They did that to create some distance between the drivers and the passengers. DDOT even offered free fare for bus riders. But shortly after those precautions were announced, one bus driver brought attention to some reckless passenger behavior. This coronavirus shit is for real. And we out here as public workers doing our job, trying to make an honest living to take care of our families. We lost our brother Jason Hargrove, you know, who recorded a video live. But for you to get on the bus and stand on the bus and cough several times without covering up your mouth, and you know that we in the middle of a pandemic, 
that lets me know that some folks don't care. A week and a half after posting the Facebook Live recording, Jason died of the coronavirus. A week after his death, the city put surgical masks on the bus for riders. I think that was the catalyst into making sure we required the PPE needed. This was the reality many essential workers across industries faced every day during this pandemic. And so we had those individuals still needing to come out to work when people who had other means could stay at home and and shelter in place, if you will. And people are also concerned that they can't stay at home because they have a lower wage job. They may not have the benefits, the paid leave. They may not be able to pay someone for childcare. So again, they're forced to come out. The CDC developed what's called a social vulnerability index. It's a number that measures how vulnerable a county is to suffering after a hazardous event. Events like natural disasters, chemical spills, or in this case, a pandemic. The number determines vulnerability through 15 social factors like social economic status, housing, and transportation. In January of 2021, the University of Michigan released a study where researchers compared the social vulnerability index to COVID-19 cases and deaths per capita in U.S. counties. They found that communities with high indexes saw greater coronavirus cases and deaths. The index is a scale from 0 to 1, and 1 is the highest vulnerability. Wayne County's index as of 2016, 0.87. What we're seeing with COVID-19 is not a surprise in, in, in any way. The Department of Health and Human Services does have a very active diversity, equity, and inclusion council uh, that has been working diligently for several years now to address some of these things. But obviously, there's much more work to be done. Some of that work is being done by the state's Racial Disparities Task Force, In April of 2020, Governor Whitmer started the task force to focus on identifying the factors that cause the disparities. And Dr. Khaldun said they've been doing some really important work. Right when the disparities task force um, was formed, I was already working with my team to draft a letter that we sent, we ended up sending to every healthcare provider in the state that specifically highlighted these disparities in COVID-19 and specific things that healthcare providers could do to try to address them. We also work with the Disparities Task Force to expand access to testing. So we have, particularly in the Southeast Michigan area, several uh, mobile and community testing sites that have been stood up uh, specifically to address access to testing in that community. We've also created culturally and linguistically appropriate guidance documents. So again, instead of saying necessarily uh, go and use that separate bathroom in your home. We're giving them more specific concrete guidance on how to still be as safe as possible if you're unable to isolate yourself effectively. The Racial Disparities Task Force released an interim report in November of 2020, and it showed that the disparity that existed in the initial outbreak had been significantly reduced by the fall. Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, who chairs the task force, credits state and local efforts for the decline. And public health experts do agree with him. But they also point to the virus's geographical shift. In the spring, the virus hits southeast Michigan hard. But by the fall, areas with larger white populations like western Michigan and the Upper Peninsula saw high numbers. So while the racial disparity in coronavirus numbers were reduced, the disparity in social and economic conditions remain. And Dr. Khaldun says... It'll take more than just a task force to fix them. Something that's been created uh, 
over four centuries certainly cannot be <laughs> removed entirely by, by task force over a series of months. And so I think the, the work of the task force is incredibly important, but it's also going to take employers, whoever they may be, um, and just the general community to identify this as a, an issue and to, to do things in their own personal lives and professional lives to address these disparities. Didn't you know that Detroit is the city of hope? How could it not be? I'm absolutely uh, optimistic. Even though we talk about these disparities and the disproportionate impact on communities of color, minority communities are incredibly resilient. Hope is as woven into the fabric of Detroit as our famed creativity. Hope rode the ocean waves with immigrants from Europe leaving starvation and pogroms for new lives in Detroit. There are resources and there are experts in the community and you don't have to have a PhD to be an expert. We have a way of banding together and supporting each other and, and bringing ourselves up. Uh, that is why we are still able to survive in, in this country. Hope fueled the buses, trains, and flatbed trucks, hopped on and rode with those leaving old Jim Crow. Hope was in Black Bottom, making our way out of no way. So I'm very uh, optimistic. The work of the task force of Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, the leadership of Governor Whitmer, and just the leadership of everyday people in the community makes me um, optimistic that we can, we can survive this. We are the people of hope in the city of hope. We held on to hope for such a time as this. Thank you. We Lived It is reported and produced by Darcy Moran, Tad Davis, and me, Carrie Jr. II. The poem excerpt you just heard is an original piece written by Marsha Music entitled, Detroit is Another Word for Hope. Project materials are supplied by the Michigan History Center, with special thanks to Mark Harvey. Our executive producers are Marianne Struman and Anjanette Delgado, and our editor is Peter Batia. Everybody has their own story to share about the COVID-19 pandemic. Submit yours by leaving a three-minute telling at 313-288-0370. That's 313-288-0370. And check out Freed.com to learn more.